Hey, welcome. This is the next episode of Mo Faith. You got Mo, you got Faith. You got Faith, you got Mo. Yeah. <laughs> What's up, y'all? And uh, we were just, we had already just started chatting about um, kind of this up, up, upheaving week um, in my life. Uh, as Faith here, I had a person who I really liked a, a great deal who I found out passed away from a self-motivated death, um, uh, otherwise known as suicide. And so it was very uh, struck by that reality and, and, and what maybe I could have done differently in about five, six months ago. Um, <laughs> and what, if anything, right? Um, because, you know, there often sometimes it's not anything you can do. Um, but, you know, just thinking about that has been something I've been having on my mind this week. And then Mo had some news, too, as far as their own mental health process and, and their journey. So I thought we just, you know, why don't we talk about that and, like, get into it and have a fairly deep conversation today about PTSD, self-motivated death slash suicide, traumatic events. So if, if that's something that um, you don't want to listen to, you should turn this off now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's the only warning you're getting. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, because this is not to get deep. Like, yeah. Right, right. <laughs> I just want to be honest with you. I'm just, I'm just going to light like, now, okay? Yeah, right. No, seriously, please keep puffing away as you know, I tell people. Um, it's one of those things where I, um, I had, I've had this moment over and over in my, you know, publicness of life where people have uh, said to me, like, you need to not like be so heavy on people, right? Like you're really like, you're fucking on my head up. <laughs> um, and I'd be like, all I'm doing is sharing my personal experience. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Like I haven't, cheap, man. <laughs> I hadn't said, I haven't made, I haven't lied to you. I haven't told you something that's not true from my perspective, right? Mm -hmm. um, I haven't, I haven't brought something up that belongs to someone else, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, owning that, I remember even having a conversation sometimes with black activists who would be really, you know, like, I don't want to hear about, you know, assault or rape or uh, childhood sexual abuse or all those things like that. We don't need to bring that into this place. Meanwhile, black people are abused at really high rates, right? So all the people in the world are experiencing that. What I kind of found, especially within black activism, especially within black female activism, was that there was this undercurrent of sexual abuse that was on, ongoing, where, I mean, countless, I mean, just unfortunately famous and huge activists are currently being abused by partners, right? Currently doing activism, speaking at women's marches, doing that type of stuff, and going home and getting beat, right? So to me, the not talking about it is where, like, we go wrong, kind of. Like, mm -hmm. it's about making sure that we actually do talk about it, because unfortunately, mm -hmm. if you don't talk about it, it keeps happening. Right. And, like, I feel it's also worse. Like, how much talking about it can, that's, we have to think about that. Like, do we need to, you know, <laughs> as I know, I'm a little against trauma porn. Mm -hmm. and, and just this oh hey here's the worst thing that ever happened to me let's go through it and you know i'll get some comments and people will send me some sympathy online and we'll relive that trauma collectively as a group as a society as a social media um and what benefit is that right so i'm, I'm always kind of interested in kind of glossing over the details of shit <laughs> that's terrible right um and getting closer into hey here's how i've seen people recover right Hey, here's what people can do legally, socially, spiritually, medically, mm -hmm. therapeutically. Mm -hmm. um, and it is a benefit to, to not forget stuff in the sense of not only do I remember my stuff that I've experienced, but I also have um, sometimes where I've seen really great outcomes for other people who use different type of methodologies, you know. So, Mo, we're just going to kind of briefly go mo i want to have you get into your story a little bit as much as you want to um you know the brush strokes the broad strokes are kind of mo is an lgbt veteran mm -hmm. who experienced violence in the military yes right? that is a very short and kind way of putting it um i served during i served during don't ask don't tell so we'll, we'll okay. put we'll put that addition into yes. it um and for those people who don't know don't ask don't tell is a long-standing u.s uh policy surrounding the military that had people who were LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, or plus, or some person on that spectrum, they were not allowed to share their identity. 
Um, they were also not asked anymore, and that had been the occasion for military before that time period, right? That they were interrogated or hunted or even tracked to see if they were going to gay bars and stuff like that. And if they were, they were kicked out. So, quote unquote, it was a nice, friendly policy, supposedly. Right. Only um, in my in my particular case, because I do have a special case um my command was well aware of my status as a lesbian very early in my career and Mm. they used it against me in Mm. throughout the course of my career um and that has caused a lot of problems for me and is a significant cause of my ptsd Mm -hmm. Um, the When I first got out, I did a lot of speaking about don't ask, don't tell, and trying to help college students understand what service members were going through under don't ask, don't tell, and using my experiences um, to try to help open people's eyes to to some of of how bad it was um, without going into the specifics of the trauma. Yeah. It was a big battle um, that I was I was witness to. I was part of it to a certain extent when uh, President Obama, uh, you know, became president. It became a really big push. And the first year of his presidency was pretty volatile on the issue. Um, And, you know, I don't know how often I've told this story, um, but the first year I went to the White House was 2010. Um, to the Obama White House, and I was invited to um, a luncheon, an LGBT pride luncheon is what they were calling it. It was like a, hey, we're going to do a thing. Now, of course, they weren't calling it an LGBT pride luncheon because this is 2010, so they're calling it a gay pride luncheon. Um, (laughs) 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 Lesbians and bisexuals people don't exist, right? So I got there, and they're like, gay, lesbian, gay, gay. They didn't even really do lesbians a lot. It was all gay people. (laughs) And the guy, I'm telling you, the guy who ran it, he was like super gay all the time. And this one person came out of the crowd and came up to him, me and another person from my community. And they said, I just want you to know there are bisexuals here. And I was like, here? Like, I'm, I'm obviously here. Um, <laughs> they're like, no, there are bi people working in the White House, but we're not allowed to come out because their mm. uh, boss, who's gay, was like, that'll make us look bad. Right? Oh. Wow. Having an existence makes somebody else look bad. Wow. Oh, yeah, it was great. It was great. And this is very common for bi people to be told that they're not valid, that they're not gay enough, that they have no issues, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, bi people have higher rates of violence, higher rates of difficulty, higher rates of cancer, higher rates of everything compared to gay and lesbian peers, right? So much so that the data of bi people is what makes LGBT health go around. Yeah. But a lot of times we're not and lesbians, right? Lesbians. way up there right so it's one of those things of all these types of violence health issues mental health issues they're often not being talked about even though we have those higher rates people inside of our communities are like we're going to talk about this right and so you see this kind of erasure right of 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 especially female experience oh yeah that, that women, uh, LGBT women are often, no, it's not anything unless it's gay, right? Unless it's like specifically lesbian, specifically gay, like specifically you're in a same-sex relationship and this happened and it was had a gay lens, right? So I wonder, if, you know, from your perspective, I mean, did you remember seeing that kind of stuff with Dan Choi and how, how involved were you at that point in 2010 of trying to, with the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell? So for me, um, the experience that I was having was in Louisiana, and it was at the the community level, um, doing things like um, Dr. Grunez's gay politics module, speaking to his classes, um, mm-hmm. or going, um, I was doing a lot of blogging at the time, and um, I was I was actually getting um, requests from people um, 
at the time, this is, wow, this is going to date me a little bit, but um, a lot of the content mill um, early blog sites, uh, like um, when Yahoo had a content network, right? Uh, a lot of those early sites were, were up. There was a lot of people doing interviews, were going out and they were talking a lot about um, gays in the military and don't ask, don't tell was a very big conversation piece at the time so um there was a lot of stuff in in that way what's mm -hmm. going on with it what's you know what's been your experience and the experience was just it was primarily the experience of a woman being harassed in the military mm. mm -hmm. that's what it was i mean and, and maybe for the most part has similarities with heterosexual bisexual trans anybody who's female identified um and it should be noted mm -hmm. as well in this podcast that don't ask don't tell was repealed but only for gay lesbian and bisexual service people um when it was repealed in obama's first administration it did not include transgender non-binary agender um service people so those folks were not allowed to come That's out a partial uh-huh and it wasn't really seen like that there was a real um you know no it was, it was a, seen as a big, big f you to the trans community i thought as far like just like yeah you're not in this but let's celebrate anyway you know um and i remember a bunch of, of bi folks you know being like hey like don't forget about us like this covers us and making sure like it was listed because there was a fear that and this this has happened where you know in the united states there wasn't a single bisexual uh, asylum seeker for almost 50 years, 70 years. Somebody did a study on the internet about this and found that every single asylum seeker who had come to America was either straight or gay. Meanwhile, so many people are bi, but it turned out that the asylum handbook actually said that bisexuals were, were like invalid. <laughs> so all the judges in America who were deciding this were like, you have to be homosexual. One, um, and, and one guy actually was bi and he claimed, you know, LGBT asylum rights. And then he was deported because he ended up marrying a woman in the United States. Right. So he was a bisexual person deported oh, just for marrying a straight person. Um, and I don't even think she was straight. Oh, she was okay. also bi. Right. But it was one of those things where because, mm. you know, people don't necessarily see those things as valid. Um, and I do think that that happens. So, oh, okay. So you're here on a gay visa, but you're in a straight relationship so we can deport you. Oh, and it, even worse, so, somebody from wow. the community, somebody reported him. Somebody was like, I've seen him out with this woman making out. <laughs> somebody sent mm. a letter to the immigration to report him for heterosexual behavior. <laughs> Um, and because they didn't have it, that bi and queer and people can have multi-gender relationships, um, they, they were like, yeah, you're, you're not gay. You lied about being a threat. And the reality is, as a bi person in a different country, you're just as reviled, if not more, right? Well, if you're a trans person, if you're a lesbian, you know, every single L letter is not supported in these foreign countries that have hostilities towards homosexual, towards trans, towards anybody, right? Being bisexual, right. you don't, don't mean you're not going to die, right? right? And so it's one of those things where we had to really train the United States government to, to get that. But I was surprised, I was so surprised that that was true at, that, at those levels, right? That unless we put it into the document, a lesbian might not be covered because only a gay or you know, and then really what we're saying is that straight people will choose to interpret the law to that benefit, right? Well, I think when given the chance, I think it's always going to be they're going to choose how they interpret, like whomever it is. You're always like we all are rolling a die every time we go into a government office. Mm -hmm. Um. Somebody I was talking to, one of the nurses at the at the VA, or was she just said, you know, fill out the form again. Um, maybe if if you think you were discriminated against the last time you filled out the form, fill it out again because maybe the person who gets it this time won't discriminate against you. 
Like that Unfortunately, is I have chanciest, chanciest. Yeah. It, it tell, it's, it's, it's true, right? Because I think they're also understanding how the system works, which is that those uh, forums get sent to a body of people who are not spending a ton of time looking into it. Um, and so A, the person's telling, from my perspective, they're kind of telling you, no, try again for discrimination's sake, but also try again because they don't even know that you're doing it again. Right. Right. Like that's how bad this is. Like you just throw it at the wall and see what sticks. And sometimes mm -hmm. in those cases, you know, uh, changing your middle name usage, you know, uh, going to an initial for your middle name, going to initial for your first name, you can change the way you're filling out that form, fill it out several different times, giving yourself the most chance to get a government response. Mm -hmm. which is something I've definitely done. Um, <laughs> yeah. Because they'll be like, oh, also... this person again. But if you change it so that's not you exactly, then gives you Mike gives you an extra shot. That's also the thing everybody needs to remember is that they're gonna deny as frequently as they can because they they want you to quit. They want you to give up. Yeah, and a, a lot of people have talked about the, the VA as being really difficult to engage with, really difficult to get services from. You know, like one of those things that a judge, after you're arrested for some terrible thing, will now order the VA to provide you services. Like, that's one of the ways I've seen it. I've literally seen that happen. Where like somebody couldn't good. get services forever and then committed a crime. And then the family was like, we've gone to the VA over and over, judge. And like, the judge literally ordered the VA to provide services for this guy as part of like his program. And yeah. it's like, that, how terrible does it have to be that we have to go that backwards, right? We have to literally wait until house is on fire before, you know, we're asking yeah. for any, we're getting any type of water, right? Everything's burned yeah. to the ground already. No, that's like, that's as bad as like the disability office telling a disabled person that they have to prove they're disabled before they can get disability. A disabled person doesn't have the money for the doctors to get disability. They're yeah. And a lot of people don't know that there is a cottage industry, just so you know, if you don't know, but there is a cottage industry, especially on the coasts, um, of doctors that will work with you for free and then take a huge portion or not a huge, but a decent portion of whatever benefits you do receive. So that's kind of what the government knows exists and allows this underground system to work, quote unquote. But a lot of folks don't even know that you can do that. Like, I didn't know that I had a friend recently who got backdated disability here in California, and they didn't put any money up for their lawyer, but the lawyer is taking like 30% of their award once it gets received. But they got all of the disability that they would yeah. have gotten for the last five years at one time. Wow. Well, so that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah. I was like, can I tell everybody that exists? She was like, please, right? She's going to do a podcast with me. You might have met her once. Her name's Jane Baldivias. Who knows? I She's gonna, she wants like, to talk to people about, about this. We, we were in slow together. She was cool. with uh, us back in the day and, and a little bit in slow high. But, you know, just from her perspective, she was like, how come people don't know about this? Like, how come, like, I, I went so many years seeking help, seeking support, and didn't know that lawyers will do this type of deal. And I was like, it's true. A lot of people don't know that if a government doesn't provide you something, there is a capitalistic enterprise that will. Yeah. Right? Like if you are a person who loses a family member to a police shooting, right? Mm -hmm. There's a whole bunch of, of lawyers now who kind of spring up and offer their services. And then any award that you, the family gets, they'll take a huge portion of that, like 40 to 60% versus mm. a traditional lawyer that would take 30 to 40%. They're going to take a much higher percentage because there's a lot more money and a lot more work that goes into those type of cases, but they know them to be, you know, fairly, they can get some money out of them. But, you know, a lot of people don't necessarily know that they go, what am I supposed to do? This happened. There's nothing I can do. No, there's definitely lawyers that will work with you. Um, but it's unfortunate, though, that that doesn't exist. We can't just get that from our government, from, mm. like, our state, from our city, from the communities that we live in, right? We have to, like, kind of go to the legal, like, and then use money of ours to pay for that support. Yeah. Because there are VA lawyers, right? Or you can hire a lawyer if you had the money 
you could hire a lawyer or, you know, if you have money coming from the VA, they could make a deal with you on that. But that all has existed because the VA is so difficult to deal with. Yeah, they've got, I mean, they've got, um, there is a doctor and a lawyer for everything. Right. <laughs> for every government service, there's a doctor and a lawyer who will help you get through it. Uh, Which because is so they recognize tremendously how ridiculous. ridiculous the problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and uh, you're right, for every government department, because that exists for IRS, that uh, Treasury, that exists for the Small Business Administration, that exists for the Department of Agriculture, right, if you're a farmer. So what we're really saying is kind of, you know, big-ass brains of ours, thinking ahead, we're like, hey, isn't that strange and unfortunate <laughs> <laughs> that so much of our country, this beautiful country of ours that we have, like we have all these Americans who do not have any ability to rely on this huge, massive infrastructure called the federal government, right? That's what we're saying, because this, these departments are all I mean, part of one system. <laughs> theoretically, we're supposed to just be able to go onto the Internet now to these different branches, websites, and navigate through our little accounts and be able to deal directly with them. But even that is overly complicated. The only way um, I've seen it, and it usually isn't, it's, it's just, it, it depends on where you are, but Congress people do have a website, if people don't know, there you can go to house.gov or whatever, Google Congress, your congressperson, and put your zip code in and get the, the website for that person, and you can request any, any help with any federal entity, right? Like you personally could go to your mm -hmm. congressperson and ask for help with the VA, right? Mm. So they do like a whole host of help. Like I actually had to do this at one point um, and, and get a congressperson's help with, with the IRS. Um, and they were able to negotiate with me as, as a member of their you know congressional district, right? Cool. But I've also seen them do that for the VA and I've also seen them do that for, um, basically like I said, I guess anything that has to do with the federal government they're like supposed to be a representative. Like, I don't know if you knew like one person named Kristen at our high school who went to, um, they went to West Point. They were actually a year before you came. So, because they graduated a year before, before we did. Um, but they ended up going to West Point and it turns out the Congress people of your district, well, are the, you have to go to them to get a letter of recommendation to apply to, to West Point. Good job, Kristen. Yeah, yeah, they did it. They last time I looked, they were like in Hawaii teaching seal diving, maybe or some shit. So it was, they went <laughs> on. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, like, I don't know. I was looking into it. No, I, you know, but they were super, super great person. Um, and it was really lovely to see that they're very. They had such a hard uh, work ethic towards physical exercise to try to compete, be able to get into West Point, which takes a lot of physical. Um, you know, sit-ups and push-ups and that type of stuff to be able to, to get into the school. Um, but I, I found, oh, wow, that's what Congress people actually do. When people are like, what do these people do? Technically, they're actually supposed to help you with problems like this. Like, at least, you know what I'm saying? They can't help you with, like, the DMV or, like, the state license. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> Right, right. Like, that's the thing, right? You know, and that would be if you, you're like, oh, who could help you with that? Honestly, that's supposed to be your governor's office, Right. That would be the person who runs the state who you're supposed to be able to request help from. Um, but a lot of, I think a lot of times that's, it's one of the hardest things to see in America is that people don't know anything about these systems or how to work them. Definitely not how to work them. Some of no. these, some of these systems, like it, it's, uh, if you put yes here and you put the wrong thing on that whole form. Yeah. Like, you get a no. I, I was so terrible to watch during the pandemic with all these people struggling through, you know, these portal systems like EDD or the unemployment systems across the United States where various people didn't, you know, one person didn't check a box, like a literal box. And they missed it and they got the whole thing rejected, right? All of their unemployment had to redo the application were behind several months and receiving their unemployment because they missed a checkbox. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I just think it's really unfortunate that we have you know, I, that's why I say it's almost like it's a failure on all sides of politics, 
that that system is to take like we're 2023 and having conversations people had in 1983 like <laughs> an AI is alive and we're like the VA still sucks like you know like <laughs> so yeah do something I think that's one of the biggest things that we could probably get a lot of Americans to agree on is that the federal government isn't doing the best job for everybody no well like okay so I, I had this I had this conversation with the VA nurse because I got a little distracted and I was a little bit upset. Um, I one of one of my PTSD triggers is waiting in lines. Um, in the lines in the Navy, I got jumped a lot. Um, in the lines in school, I got jumped a lot. Um, so one of my triggers is being in lines. I don't. The thing for me is to be in lines and to face that and um, to also confront calmly, like when somebody is, um, even now as an adult, uh, going to try to steal your place in line. You like, happened, it happened to me yesterday. <laughs> I was at CBS. I was in this line. I tell you, I was there for like 30 minutes in line and there's like three people behind me and yeah. I finally get to go to get the medicine and this old white dude, I kid you not, like 80 years old with a fucking walker just scoots, scoots right in front of me like, hello, I'm ready to be helped now. And luckily, the lady who runs it, I've always get my medicine from her. She was like, um, sir, the line is over there. <laughs> and he turned around and he gave me this look. And I looked at the lady behind me and she's giving me this look like, are we going to let him go? And I'm like, fuck no, we not letting him go. <laughs> I was like, 2023. <laughs> and somebody was like, and I had told my son in the past, like, you know, when it comes to older people, let them go if we have, if we can. But, you know, I had my son, he was ready for dinner. You know, you have to balance and say, okay, what, you know, and the fact is that, you know, he didn't get in line and he just cut. No, um, I got real respect issues. I got respect issues. You walk into a room and you got 14 people standing in a line. You don't cut 14 people off. I don't care. I people got do it. It's like a, it's a thing and where you people don't... will be so, so like, oh, I, I can do this. I have the right to do it. I'm more important than you or. You don't walk into a medical facility and cut 14 disabled people off. <laughs> yeah, no, I would imagine it probably happens <laughs> in those spaces more because people are dealing with their own medical or mental health challenges or. <laughs> Like, I'm going to be damned. I'm going to be damned after everything I went through. Uh uh. These motherfuckers are not cutting me off no more. I ain't dealing right. with that shit. Um, so. You know, uh, my line trick, because uh, it's a thing I noticed. I did like a little study for myself several years ago before I had my son. I noticed with my can't forget things um, that every time I got in a line, predominantly with white people, that was run by white people, like say I'm at the movie theater and you know, it's all white people at the counter, even sometimes brown people, but not, let's say not black people, right? And then everybody in line is white, like whatever line I get into was gonna go the slowest. Okay. And so at the time I was married to somebody white and they realized this as well. So we decided to start splitting the lines and they would go, the white person would go into that line and they would get all the way to the front and start ordering, and then I would come. <laughs> because, uh, like, right? And you had to time like it, right? Shit. Like I'm telling you, we had he had to, he had to, he had to order like three or four things because if I if he got one order in and then I showed up, all of a sudden we go slow down. <laughs> or literally, they will go on break. I swear to God. So, and, and I'm telling you, this is like. In you know super liberal areas like this is not conservative. This is not the South. This is with you know West Coast liberals, right? Um, and, and so I, I realized like, hey, this is a thing. And, and now I don't have a white partner, uh, so you know I have to I have to brave these lines alone. But one of the things I've noticed is that slightly turning myself makes me feel so much more comfortable because I also experienced mm -hmm. being jumped in lines and um, experiencing. 
a very strange amount of white women who would come up behind me and pull my pants up and tell me that my underwear was showing. And so that was just like a really common is this and, appropriate touching. Yeah, no, I mean, reaching into my underwear to pull it up, like Just totally never, normal for them. Really and I've like never met this person in my life. <laughs> to leave their damn hands to themselves. And so real. I basically, I just always have an affect of, you know, situational danger is real because humans are real. It is. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so but... whenever I'm in line, like I was with this, with this guy who snuck in front of me, I, I face the opposite. I do not face this way. Like everybody's in this way of the line, right. going to, to the north. I'm facing, you know, west, right? Okay. Um, and, and even a little angled, so I'm not ignoring the person at the front who's going to be calling me up, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm never, ever facing directly in the, in the line because I can't protect myself that way. Right. And it, it might be a way that I've also learned to manage my PTSD around that. So I, I bring that up as a, mm. you know, a, a just like if you it would help anybody, like fucking do that. Twirl around. I know, right? You know what I mean? Like, whatever tricks. Whatever you need to do to be, you know, to maintain your space so somebody don't come in front of you, right? To be able to, you know, know what's going on, to self advocate for yourself. But then also that, like, you know, there's ways that you can. Yeah manage PTSD, I, I do think. Yeah. For me, because I have the balance issues um, with yeah, the yeah. pressure issue um, in my hearing, I have a walking stick. Mm -hmm. So I put a lot of my tension and anxiety from walking in the lines into that stick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm not gonna tell you to do what my grandma used to do, but um, <laughs> well, we took my I took my grandma to the 2013 Obama inauguration, and she has mobility issues. She had mobility issues. She's passed away, bless her in heaven. Um, but she she had a she had a stick of cane, and when people got too close, she would just start hitting them. <laughs> oh man, I, I mean, like from the chair, you know, because they would they'd be like she was like worried that they're gonna back up on her and hurt her leg or hurt her, you know. And it's true, people do not pay attention to people in wheelchairs. So right. her her kind of thing was to keep this like little stick out there and be like, <laughs> you're in my space, you're in my space. <laughs> and I'm looking at her like, you really can't do that. But I'm also like, well, that's kind of true. Like if they do step backwards on her and don't even realize they will hurt my grandma. So like, who am I to judge, you know, an older person's, you know, ability to, to self protect, right? Right. Um, yeah. I'm just I just putting it out there that can use can use I'm just saying as far as a boundary, you know, like you know, people are like, oh, yeah. I don't want to get hit by that, you know? Right, no. Like people should do that to make sure people understand like this is a, a issue. Like, should you come and fall on me, this would be really difficult for me and my disability, right? Or should something you not be paying attention to my space, that can cause me to feel a certain way that really is difficult. Right. So I'm not I'm not willing to do that. Right. I, I'm right. I'm, I'm really. willing to, to share with you that that needs to change immediately and get the fuck out of my shit. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Keep it moving. Um, you know, no, and it happens to me a lot as far as especially in liberal progressive areas. I swear conservatives. Oh, you I swear say to God, liberal like it's a dirty word. It's not. I can't help it. It's I, not. I, there's, a, there's so many wonderful ones. I don't want to say that's not true, right? Obama is a great guy. <laughs> wonderful man. <laughs> uh, you know, I love him to death, right? Uh, Bill Clinton is also a lovely man. God, I have met him. Think he's great. You know, I was raised by, you know, Auntie Maxine Waters, wonderful liberal. <laughs> but white liberals generally know. <laughs> Like when you're in politics and it's inside of it, it's a little bit more than, you know, you're just average Democrat, right? But I do think that, like, if you were to do polls, you would find that a lot of black people who are in conservative space are feel more comfortable than the black people who are in liberal space, right? Mm. And from my experience, like, just, like, there's always, I always ran safe spaces at, like, progressive spaces. Like, any progressive thing, I'd be doing a safe space for people of color because people would literally come in and just collapse in tears. 
mm-hmm. and just be crying because somebody started going into their hair and trying to understand how their braids worked. Mm-hmm. Right. And those are always white people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was not, so yeah. I always tell people, you know, and I don't have the same, you know, mm-hmm. um, dirty word sure. feeling about folks who are POC or LGBT who are liberal in the sense of like, I totally get that. I, I totally support it. I understand. But so that there's wonder... a lot of folks who are difficult, who are not, who, sh- who are representative of the community in part mm-hmm. because the community does not push back on that behavior. I want to explore this though. Um, and I don't want to explore this as a, in any way of a dismissing of what you have said, because I think what you have said is incredibly important and incredibly valid. My question or my exploration is these people seem to have no boundaries whatsoever with anybody. No, they, it's a very specific black experience within progressive politics. Um, to the point where Latinos okay. will articulate like they don't get this shit, right? Okay, and, you're seeing. And, okay, so like, you're because Latinos I, or Native my Americans. experience with some of these people is similar to what you're talking about, yeah, and no, I, I am I, considered the white woman would have been having the white woman experience, and yet I would also be experiencing this very hands-on-y. I do think that the, there's aspects that we share as far as being heavy set. So anybody who's heavier or rounder in the face, so to speak, uh, seems to elicit some of those responses too, right? Whether that's fat phobia or big phobia or whatever you want to call it, that there are folks who are less caring around big people's space, right? Or who they perceive to be big people, right? Um, and not saying that, you know, skinny people don't experience all this kind of stuff, but like, Generally speaking, I think that there is some aspect of uh, if you're any type of bigger and you're not huge, I'm not saying you are. Oh, no, I mean, I got larger as um, a reaction to the touching, actually. Which uh, obviously is a very common response, right? Very common response and it's self-protective and it feels better. And there really shouldn't be no problem with it, you know, as far no, as, it's, hey, it's a... this, is, <laughs> this is protecting me from being assaulted. This is protecting me from being harassed. Um, it's and, not and, actually, though. It ends up being It doesn't in some ways, though, right? Like you're going to say, like. I mean, it does. Yeah. It's... Some people are not now, but then there's this other group that are, right? It's a right. trade-off. And I experienced right. that, too, when I, lost, when I lost a lot of weight. And I was like, wow, I'm really getting sexually harassed by men. But all of this, like, pulling my pants up and shit disappeared overnight. Like, wow. no white woman was fucking with me after that. No, they they were looking at me, like, with these eyes that was, like, daggers. And I was like, oh, you are uh, you find me a threat. Oh, got you. Right? Whereas wow. before, when I was heavier, that wasn't a threat. I was someone to care for, to, you know, paternalize, right? To maternalize, right? To, I'm going to take care of you, you big black person. Oh, look at you. You don't know. Oh, you know. And in all cases, it's a matter of you not having any ownership over yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's possible that I am like people perceive me as being zoned out or not paying attention. And that's just like I'm literally in the grocery store, like looking at the prices. I'm I'm intentionally um, uninterested in eye contact or human connective signals. You know, here's the thing. It doesn't matter if you and I are looking at the box of Cheerios or if we're looking at our friends. No human being that we don't know has a right to touch us without our permission. No, no. And it's one of those things where, you know, I I tend to be very careful about it. And I think people are starting to be more careful these days, you know, going through a grocery store with the pandemic and all that kind of stuff, you know, excuse me, can I get around you? I feel like there has been um, an increase in awareness that this is something that we need to make sure happens for all people. But no, I mean, it's a funny thing in the sense that when I started hanging out with folks like the log cabin Republicans or the, you know, young Republicans and stuff like that, um, that organization just blew my mind when I found out it existed in the nineties. Like I just, sorry, and they're so, and it's so, the funniest thing is those meetups that I've been to are probably twice to three times as diverse as anything I ever did with LGBT 
progressives. It doesn't surprise me at all. And the, the funniest part, because I can't forget things, is that sometimes there's the same black people who are in the other ones. <laughs> Who are in the log cabin. And I'm like, I know I've seen you at a fucking Democratic shit. Like, you know, I've seen you with progressives, but here you are too, you know? Like, people who do both sides, who, like, party with everybody, who are like, I like to party with everybody, you know? And so like, it's fun. it's really, it's a funny thing. And, and I don't, yeah, I just don't end up in the same type of difficulties um, within those spaces. And I think a lot of it's just my personality of being, like, forthright, wanting to be da-da-da-da. In this progressive world right now, people are a little, you know, namby-pamby, you know what I'm saying? Like, they're like, mm -hmm. please, you know, support me and how I feel. And I'm like, fuck you and how you feel. Like, <laughs> so, <laughs> like, and they're like, that's not how we've become at things today, Fave. And I'm like, oh, really? You know, because in real life, these people are not hiring black people. In real life, they're not supporting LGBT people. In real life, they're not helping kids and animals and dogs, right? Like, we have this deeply segmented politics away from people actually doing the work. Right, people who are running the kill shelters, people who are running the kids' help stuff, they're often not being supported by the politics that say that they support them. In my in my experience, so you know, I, that's kind of why I tell people like, you know, comfort level for me personally, it's a little, it feels more comfortable. Maybe also because I'm from San Luis Obispo, right? So I already was the white black kid. Right. Mm. I've already been that person who experienced whiteness intimately by having white step parents. Right. Mm -hmm. So I don't have the same um, sense of always needing all black space. Right. Mm -hmm. I do engage in all black space, especially when it comes to the online communities mm -hmm. and all black female spaces and all black LGBT spaces and that type of stuff. But for the most part, like I'd much rather like hang out with somebody who wants to like have a conversation then complain if that you know <laughs> i'm saying i feel like i don't know i feel like everybody should try it i'm like everybody should go to a conservative meeting and then you're gonna be like holy shit these fuckers are fun <laughs> like i don't know I, I don't know maybe like i said i might have done it for too long you know i mean i was in politics for like 25 years right <laughs> On, on the Democratic <laughs> side. So being able to do that comparison for me, it's just fun. But at the same time, I'm not going to tell you I don't disagree with conservatives. Like Matt Walsh is a dodo head, right? Like always talking trash on LGBT conservatives, talking trash on this uh, one person I love, Ryan, who plays Lady Maga. So he's like a – he is a gay guy who does drag. He's not supportive of, you know, hurting or – de-autonomizing kids and saying, hey, let's do surgeries, let's do stuff on children. And he does that as a drag queen. And a whole bunch of leftist people really dislike his his thoughts, right? Um, and then a whole bunch of people on the right also dislike his thoughts, right? Because he's in drag, and they're very upset about anybody doing drag, right? So I do mm -hmm. think we're going to start to see a world where there's people on left and right who are like, we have certain things in common, mm -hmm. right? Like, drag for adults is awesome, Drag for kids with kids, I'm good with. It's more when we do drag with kids at a bar that I'm like, what are we doing? <laughs> like, I am, like, I'm very aware of sexual abuse in the LGBT community. I'm very aware of same-sex abuse. Um, yeah. And I'm not okay with letting any of that type of thing go down. And unfortunately to me, that's been a lot of where LGBT space has a lot of work to do, is that the leadership supports abusers. Right. That people who are same sex abuse are often not nothing's done about them compared to a prolific uh, heterosexual sexual abuser. Oh, see, and it's just been my experience that abuse sex abusers are not dealt with. No matter really your gender. just my experience yeah. that victims are shamed and sex abusers are let off the hook. And the untested rape kits are my proof. Oh, sure. Like, yeah. I mean, I think like the untested that's rape just kits, a disgrace to our nation. I think that also fits within the, the same type of mentality as far as that under-resourcing state and local governments. And again, like, you know, 
I'm a conservative, so part of what I like is a smaller federal government, right? Uh, and part yeah. of the reason why I like that would be like, hey, I could see money from the Fed being dedicated, right? We have an office of violence against women, actually was started by guess who? Joe Biden. So, you know, it's his thing to stop violence against women and be involved in that, but that type of organization will maybe make a $2 million grant or a small money grant to help, not necessarily institute a long-term engagement of this office will provide all rape kit funding for all counties in the United States. Mm -hmm. Right, what happens when that happens, right? And there's a lot of pushback on people because they're like, we don't have the amount of manpower to pursue all these uh, assaults. Uh, there's, you know, people are like, there's a whole bunch of conversation about that. But what would oh, it mean man. to have those done? And you so know, check it out. Get this one. This is really funny. Okay. It's not funny. Ha ha. It's funny. Irony. All right. Yeah. So proposal. Uh, there's a significant portion of funds spent by our police on escorting funeral services. Those funds could be spent on rape kits and the funerals could be escorted by the funeral homes. I think that that's a hard one because the reason I looked into that once, by the way, um, as far as like, wow, this is a really expensive thing. Um, but it turns out that a lot of times the people who do those, my dad is a police officer. Um, so he actually told me that a lot of those, a lot of the officers who do those are, are volunteering. But there's mm -hmm. a huge volunteer list and they don't usually get paid, the police officers who are doing those things. No, a lot but of they are using them. police vehicles, police gasoline. And no, police... They, they pay for their own gas. The whole thing is done by like, this is like a big thing that the officers do. That There's something called the California Peace Office Association. They send out an email going, hey, we need officers to show up, da, 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 da. But everybody knows you can take the thing, you wear your uniform, but you have to cover all your costs, like dry clean your uniform. All that stuff has to be paid by you. But I do think I understand what you're saying. It's just one. Of, I think a lot of like, people don't realize that about officers that they're often, um, like when a big thing happens, they'll get their own, they'll pay for the gas to drive the police car to the other state to help with that issue. But they will pay for out of their own pocket. Not that doesn't come like the budgets for their offices don't include that type of stuff. I, I, I really think that this is a huge issue that we don't understand these these infrastructures. Um, there's um, the a lot that we don't understand about like it. Trillions of dollars, where your there's local lot... police department has possibly a budget of like I'm in LA, so maybe a hundred million dollars compared to several trillion dollars, right? Or where you're at, it's probably a budget maybe of one million, two, because you're kind oh, of in a smaller area, right? Gotten... What's like There's, compared to slow? How big is your area? It's, I, um, I always compare things to slow. <laughs> slow is like uh, it's like seventy thousand or something now. I want to say that. Uh, keep talking. I'm gonna pull up the stats because I'm curious now. I want to say it's like a hundred thousand, but I feel like mm -hmm. that's super large. That feel. No, I don't think so. I think that that's almost like a small town nowadays. Because a lot, of, a lot of smaller towns are becoming a little bit bigger. Let's see. Wow. Um, hmm. 370,000. Wow. I, I would just, I would often argue that we're actually not paying or, or not giving enough That's money to the departments spending. that need these monies in part because we're paying so much to the federal government. This is just like an analysis that's come to, to mind over the years that I've interacted with them. That's and like how much we're spending, how, how much people are fighting over monies, like Black Lives Matter saying, hey, we want to defund the police. We want to and take that money and spend it on community you know, outreach and mental health services and things like that. Where I would say, like, do that, but don't take away money from the police who are already under-resourced because you'll have this huge, massive 
you can't even understand how big crime spike, right? And now we're starting to have that. <laughs> I'm, so I'm, very, <laughs> I'm like, I I'm literally talking about services that that the police do that are not policing services. Well, that's what I'm saying. I think that a so, lot of those things, so like people don't see services, it as a policing thing. But that is a policing services? thing. If you don't have that escort, that hundred line cars, you're going to have accidents. That's why that's happening. Yeah. It's because there's going to be accidents. That's my understanding is why they do it, is that it causes them less money and time than if they don't do it. So it's more so to for, me about getting humans to not do that. For a large funeral... It could still be something you would want, but every funeral is definitely not going to need it. Well, that's the thing is that it becomes a thing. It's not yeah. about you or me. It's about human society's expectation of funerals, right? Because right. that's really what we're uh, – again, a lot of times we go into the state, the local, the federal, but ultimately where is this larger cost and exercise coming from? And I would probably tell you, I think if we were to run the data after pandemic, we might have had a funeral change of circumstance, right? Compared right. to what we used to see, because people, it'd be interesting to analyze. Yes, because so many people, I went to several for, for COVID myself, mm -hmm. you know, and my family had a person die of COVID. We didn't know they died of COVID in like January of 2020. A whole bunch of people went to that funeral and then people who went to that funeral died. I don't think there's 300,000. I think it's more like 150,000. I don't. Well, they could be counting surrounding areas or your county, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. But I, I just want to, I want to really put that out there. It's just in the sense of great idea as far as, hey, this is something that could just, I would just go at it, like change that whole thing. Like from a carbon perspective, what benefit is it to your loved one that we're all in a car driving like that, right? Like, just want to think about this. Like, you know, um, I just want to put it out there that like a, right. thinking about that versus saying, hey, let's take money for this to pay for that, right? I do think that that's a really common thing, yeah, of, especially from BLM. I've seen them do that of like, hey, we're going to take money from here. It's going to make sense. And it's like, no, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> Like, no, that's good. Like, if we, we were even cutting it out completely. Well, there's some reasons to think about this, especially after COVID, right? Mm -hmm. Especially after our understanding and especially knowing that COVID and long COVID are real, right? Um, and that those realities for certain people will be engaged the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. So what does that mean for how we care for elders, how we care for disabled, how we care for folks who are immunocompromised, does that mean that we go, they'll never go to a funeral again, or do we do more online stuff or things that are accessible to those communities? I, I think that I feel like I already see that happening where just in my family and others, they're very like, oh no, they're not coming. Grandma's staying at home. Like, you know, they're like, they're like the, the older people are like, no. Yeah. <laughs> I won't be showing up. There's too right, many. There's going to be how many people there? Mm, exactly. No, they're asking there. those questions. Yeah. They're they're engaging in that kind of conversation mm -hmm. and and doing that risk analysis for for basically, right? Mm -hmm. Um and uh, and other people are going, "Hey, I'm not going to bring a ton of people around my elderly grandparents." Right. You know. So, you know, the news that David Crosby died of that, of of COVID, I think is is was shocking. I heard that this week. Did he? I did. No. They just released it that his cause of death was was ultimately COVID, um, which you know it's like this guy did a lot of drugging and drinking. <laughs> COVID's what and takes COVID. him out, you know. Yeah, and that that's going to be probably the likelihood for folks who are more vulnerable because of his experiences, because of his you know liver transplant, the things that he had gone through, that he had a higher likelihood um, mm. of, of of having a fatality. I think with with COVID. Um, and so that kind of means that anybody like that. Is that, that the new natural death? Yeah. I think it's going to be up there, up, uh, probably up under heart disease and cancer. I think it might end up being within the top five or top ten leading causes of death for Americans 30 years from now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm. That's absolutely my expectation. Just in oh, the sense man. of, it, like, math-wise, it would take, like, 500 years for full 
immunization and eradication or something like that, like it takes a long time for a virulent, a viol, a violent, you know, virulent strain to adjust itself, even when you're doing um, vaccines. So it, it, it's like a scientific thing. It has to like. But how long does it take when you're using mRNA? I'm just kidding. I, I, know, I, have... I, I wonder, I, I, I just think that based off what we've seen is that the vaccines are not, you know, and I, if I recall correctly, I, I fair, I'm fairly sure that David Crosby was, was vaccinated as well. So we have seen that we definitely are not, vaccines will not stop fatal COVID, right? Do yeah. they decrease the likelihood of it potentially, but we don't know if that's true. <laughs> so I think it was a little bit of a, you know, hey, we tried. That's what science is about, right? Like, yeah. <laughs> but you've seen the news. I think you've seen like the CDC and who don't recommend your child getting multiple more uh, vaccines. Like they are like, don't do a fourth one, don't do a fifth one unless you're immunocompromised. Oh, is that and the? I, yeah, they're for kids, and I think that that's probably not a bad idea in the sense that we don't necessarily know what the long-term impacts can be. And they have been tracking some impacts for for young men. Yeah, um, the think... mitocardial. Mm -hmm. And that was my experience. After the second shot, I went into uh, second stage heart failure. <laughs> uh, oh. And yeah, and, I, and they were like, your heart, it's like falling apart. Like, we need to get you in. And I was like, I just had the vaccine. I was like, I bet it'll be back to normal. Like, and it was like, like maybe three weeks later, my it was fine. No heart issues at all. So it's just temporary, but it sure scared the heck out of me. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I definitely didn't get the next shot, the third shot. I didn't get that for like a year. Because uh, uh, I was like, let me, uh, you know. But recently, even though I got the third shot, I got COVID, you know, about a month and a half ago. My whole, my kid's class, the whole thing got it. Oh. And and so I was like, okay, you know, well, what I am I going to get another shot after having COVID? Maybe not. You know, mm -hmm. just in the sense of, is the shot helping? <laughs> like, <laughs> or is my, is it a damage to my heart type of risk I have to keep in mind and thinking about? Like, I'm not necessarily like, I think everybody should think about it from how mm -hmm. their body is and how their everything works for them. If they don't have any heart issues or no high blood pressure, you know, so. I have a lot of autoimmune issues. Yeah, I, I'd say, I, I feel like I don't think that there's probably going to be issues getting the shot every year, but I think trying to get it twice a year, I don't know. I'm pretty sure that people who do that are going to have some long-term health impacts. I just... We don't have any history of doing that with any type of medicines. You know what I'm saying? Like the hepatitis vaccine. I mean, the flu shot. <laughs> that's what i'm saying but not more than once a year with the flu shot again it's only once a yeah, year. yeah just once a year mm -hmm. there's no twice a year i've been knowing people who are like getting a, a shot every six months and i'm like i don't think that's good <laughs> i'm pretty sure <laughs> i just feel like I, I don't know it just feels like there's there's some um well one way i put it to people it's it's kind of i don't know I might like science. I don't really do science talking as much as like ghetto science, ghetto robot talk is how I call it. <laughs> right. So basically I ran my own survey and research on myself because I don't have anybody else to use with me. Okay. And what I did was I wanted to test ma mask efficacy, right? If I wear a mask consistently in public spaces, do I get COVID or I don't get COVID? Right. Mm -hmm. If I don't wear a mask, the theory that I'm operating under is that the vaccine that I have allows me to moderately and on a regular basis engage with the viral contents of COVID and allow my immune response to build a higher and higher and more robust response based off that small time engagement. Mm -hmm. Right. And that would be a small time engagement because I have an active vaccine. Right. Whereas if I wear a mask, I'm not I'm not allowing my immune response to be engaged because I'm blocking a lot more of that access to small time COVID, if that makes sense. Right. So, You're filtering. So, gotcha. Filtering. And so a lot of people who are filtering, I'm wondering if 
their likelihood of experiencing really terrible COVID is higher than people who don't mask. Um, and so I kind of tested the theory out and went back to masking really robustly for about six months and then subsequently got the worst COVID in my life. Mm -hmm. It was terrible. It was way worse <clears throat> than the time I got it before, like the worst, like kill me now. Mm. <laughs> like I, I was about to like literally go to the hospital bed. Like it, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't mm. sleep. I was throwing up. I was coughing, coughing, throwing up. It was fantastic. So, um, and I tested positive for COVID with, with the test I had at home. It's the first time that I've tested positive because when I got it before it was in 2019 when there wasn't a test available, you know, and the doctor was just like, we're pretty sure you have COVID based off your symptoms. We don't have a test yet, you know? So I definitely now I'm going back to not masking mm. and so far have not felt sick at all mm. in the sense that I think that it's very likely that there's like no vaccine for HIV, right? And so if a person has certain types of like PrEP or other things, they it's a prophylactic against it. Where with a vaccine, a vaccine interacts with the viral content, right? And ultimately, like for lack of a better word, defeats it, right? Mm -hmm. Versus letting it proliferate and continue. Mm -hmm. So my belief is that basically allowing the vaccine to do that by interacting with COVID is one of the longer, stronger benefits of building that immune system internally. And that can't be as easily done wearing a mask. Again, if you're older, immunocompromised, have any issues wearing a mask, then that will protect you and you have to be bubbled and isolated, mm -hmm. you know, um, especially during like COVID season, I think. Mm -hmm. Right, uh, which I would probably identify as October to February. Oh, God. Yes, when everybody's coughing and close quartered. Yeah. It's just a normal thing. And so if we don't, you know, just allowing for um, understanding of that, that that's part of why the death rate was so high was we weren't really doing all the stuff we needed to do as far as social distancing, mask wearing, being conscious of people coughing, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think now the human or American consciousness around doing that for all segments of society is a lot higher. Mm -hmm. What, three years later? Yeah. Mm. I think also, though, a lot of people that they're just so over it that right. they've reverted back to pre-COVID behaviors and um, have, like, the ones that were never phased by it and then the family uh, that have reverted back, like, I'm done, can't deal with it anymore um yeah. are are in a bit of denial about the severity yeah well i do think too that there's we're seeing a good amount of people now who have never got it enough that they're starting to study that and say okay there looks to be a segment of the population that is immune from covid right mm -hmm. and so people who are actually immune from covid will probably really get sick of these strictures <laughs> right <laughs> right, right. <laughs> like they've never got it it's not happening for them and people keep on caring about it. Right. So it right, really right. is something that um, over time will be an impact, right? They don't care about it now, but then somebody they do care about it passes away and they wonder. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and that probably is going to take like 15 years for full awareness of just mm. based off of HIV. I mean, HIV, it feels a little easier kind of in some ways, knock on wood or whatever, because it was within a targeted community. The, of, of, of there were several different groups of people who were having high rates of HIV, um, but having the ability to say, we're going to everybody gay, everybody bi, let's work on this, right? Like, this is us, this is our people, mm. right? It allowed a community response that I think allowed folks to recognize HIV's reality a lot faster mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. than when you have everybody experiencing something or at risk. Mm-hmm. Not saying yeah, HIV there's special. there's not a, like... a, there's not a target <laughs> group here. It's all groups. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, exactly, exactly. And I think that that makes it even harder for folks to really go: Is this real? Is this true? How could it really be? You know, 
And the, the reality is they haven't seen something that, like that in their lifetime, right? Mm-hmm. Or, or recognized it, right? Cancer mm-hmm. is like that. Heart disease is like that. Car crashes are like that. There's a whole bunch of causes of death that are happening that really don't need to happen in our country. So I think that was one of those really amusing things where our country was going to be the last to really care about this and first to stop caring again. Just like from an American perspective, right? It's like, we the last to jump on and we the first to jump off. <laughs> like, oh, we got AI oh. to build, you know? But hey, let's take uh, this a, is let's... interfering with my ability to go to Walmart at 2 a.m. I got stuff. I got stuff. I need seasonings. Okay, let's yeah. let's stop this and take a small break. Um yeah. and then we're gonna we're gonna start the recording again. But everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode. We had some deep conversations, some funny stuff. We went there. It was good. Yeah. All right, this is Mo Faith. <laughs> we're signing out. See y'all in a bit. <laughs>